Well, I think we had in song there the, the real point of Christmas is that God longs for your heart. Amen. Uh, all of the energy, all of the prophetic witness that we're about ready to read, all of the interests from heaven to earth are interests concerning your soul, interests concerning your heart. It's not to say God isn't interested in your well-being, your finances, your relationships, but all those things certainly <clears throat> take a second place, uh, and Christmas profoundly witnesses to that reality. God is interested in your heart and your soul. Jesus came to minister in his first advent to your soul, to your heart, and hopefully we'll see that here this morning. Uh, what I want to do, if, if you're somebody who marks in your Bible a little bit, can I encourage you to get out your pen or pencil? Uh, Messianic Psalms uh, have a challenge uh, that are challenging. I don't know what else to say. You know, <laughs> it's just challenging. And uh, we have a, a structure. Uh, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David, the prophet, writes here in, and I just want to make the marks. I want you to put a mark after verse number two. It's a little mark there. And then a mark after verse number five. And just, just real quickly, we'll observe the difference. You see in verses one and two, it's sort of a, a personal report, right? We're using the first person pronouns, and the first person possessive pronouns in verses 1 and 2. And that's replaced in verses 3 through 5 by an ad address. It's now the second person, you. Okay, so we'll kind of see that. So 1 and 2, it's in the I form. And 3 through 5, it's in the U. In verses 6 through 8, so make another mark after 6, or 8, I'm sorry. We're back to the I and me. And then 9 and 10... We're, we return to you. So make a little mark after verse number 10. And then we stick with I and me for a very long time, from 11 to 18. So you might want to make a little mark under 18. And then at 19 and 20, we return to you. And in 21, we really have what I call the unraveling, or uh, if, if you're familiar with... Uh, uh, novels We call it the denouement. That's French for meaning that the, the story just unravels and, and the tension finally releases. And we, we have that at the end of verse 21. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me, David reports. So, so really, you kind of want to maybe highlight verse 21. That's really a, a critical verse here in, in what's going on in this Messianic psalm. And then verses 22 through 31 give us the so what. They're really not form necessary, part of the, the, the form, uh, the, the strict form, the Hebrew poetic form. Uh, they sort of just kind of wrap it all up for us. So we'll, we'll uh, treat that a little differently. Okay, so does everybody have that? Uh, it's sort of a long psalm, and we don't want to get lost. I'm not going to reference it all. Uh, we're just going to take it as God has laid it upon my heart to give, okay? All right, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help because we're going to need it this morning and uh, we'll walk through this together. Lord, we love you. We thank you that the Spirit of God indwells us and we ask for his illumination. Uh, the church is absolutely reliant on you, dear Spirit, uh, to
to not necessarily understand the meaning of the text. Lord, that's we do by hard work. We, we're Bereans. We study the Bible. We know the laws of the English language, and we have the written word before us. It's infallible and inerrant, so we work hard at meaning. But Lord, we confess what we need help with, because we're dull, is we need to understand the significance of this passage for my life personally. And uh, Lord, uh, there's so many lessons here that David's sharing with us that are so profoundly uh, applicable to us today, given the challenging set of circumstances that we find ourselves. And most notably, Lord, we, David deals with the troubles in his life in the context of future prophecy. This is amazing. And this is a lesson that we don't want to be lost or have lost on us. We, Lord, so I pray you'd at least teach us to discipline ourselves, to view all of our problems and circumstances through the prophetic witness and uh, give us courage and hope, uh, if nothing else. So, Lord, we pray for your help. We pray the Spirit of God's work now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you've already had the psalm read for you. And I would say that <clears throat> at Christmas time, it's fitting to turn our minds to a prophetic truths concerning Jesus the Messiah. Micah, Isaiah, and many other prophets teach us that the historic Jesus of Nazareth, the historic Jesus of Nazareth, his birth, life, death, and bodily resurrection <clears throat> fulfilled, pro uh, uh, fulfilled prophecy in a literal fashion. Predicted and fulfilled circumstantial facts pronounced hundreds of years prior to the event concerning Jesus' coming are nothing short of miraculous. We would all agree with that. What a powerful witness to the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, the words we have here are occurring almost a millennia, a thousand years before they're actually fulfilled. That's a long time, folks. That's a long time. It's miraculous. There is, however, another kind of prophetic witness, the Messianic Psalms. In total, 25 different psalms, we could put it this way, one out of every six psalms, include at least one Messianic prophecy. That's pretty robust. Messianic Psalms are quoted in 11 New Testament books. So it's important we understand how to handle Messianic witness and understand what is the point of it anyway. Messianic Psalms are clearly prophetic, and I would argue in a very special way, in a way that Isaiah and Micah don't necessarily enter into, in a very special way. The psalmist knew in his words and feelings, or the psalmist knew that in his words and feelings were found, and here's the issue, or here's what's so amazing, the very words and feelings of the Messiah. You don't necessarily get that in Micah. You get the report, Bethlehem. That's what you get. You get virgin. You get facts, circumstances. But the Messianic Psalms go a step further. And they go into the very heart and mind of what the Messiah would be thinking. And the words he would express 
and the prayers he would pray. Oh, what a, what a, what a wealth of comfort uh, and information and truth that the church enjoys, having had some of this messianic prophecy fulfilled. Now you say, well, well, how do we know the psalmist echoes the very words of Jesus, Pastor Kent? Well, I want you to write Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 down in your margin there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 is a quotation of Psalm 22, 22. And the author of Hebrews there equates what we know to be David's words, right, in Psalm 22. He equates them to the very words of Jesus. He ascribes them. Jesus, you said this. So from the author of the Hebrews' perspective, there's a great confluence between what David is saying and what Jesus, in fact, said. It's upon that witness and authority that we're arguing that what we're about ready to read here, what we have read, are the very words and thoughts and impressions and difficulties that no one less than Jesus, the Messiah who came as predicted by this Messianic psalm. It's very powerful. The psalmist knew as well that the, the coming Messiah would fill out or fill up, however you want to view it, the emotional and physical suffering that he was experiencing in his life at the moment he penned Psalm 22. The pain he spoke of figuratively, perhaps with some hyperbole, and yet still very really, the Messiah would know literally and actually with no figure about it. We don't often think about David as a prophet, do we? We think of him as a great king. But scripture indicates that from the Jewish perspective, from their mind, they absolutely knew David to be a great prophet. And if you need proof of that, you can write in your margin, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 30. I believe it's Peter there preaching, reminds his audience that David the prophet prophesied these matters. And in fact, we would argue from the witness of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that David himself was prophetically conscious. He knew exactly what he was doing. That he was testifying out of the occasion of his own life and the feelings and the sufferings that he had. He was testifying of their very words and feelings that Messiah would know actually and literally. He knew that. He knew that. He was a conscientious prophet. And he knew exactly what he was doing as he penned these words concerning his own situation. So a millennia, a thousand years approximately, before the Messiah appears on the scene, the Messiah being the historic Jesus of Nazareth, David endured a severe trial a severe tribulation himself. And as he pens, he gives voice to no one less than the Messiah, the coming Messiah from David's perspective, 
the Messiah who is our and would be his perfect divine human advocate. We've already mentioned that the structure of this psalm is cyclical in nature. In each of three cycles, David communicates via figurative language what his own severe suffering was like. Each deliberation of his suffering is responded to by his own confession in prayer. That was sort of those second you passages, you passages, you passages. So each deliberation on his suffering is responded to by a confession in prayer. We'll learn from that as well this morning. But what becomes clear, very clear, is that Jesus, as the predicted Messiah fills out infinitely and eternally all human suffering with the purpose or with the expressed end to absolutely eradicate it. And can I hear an amen? Amen. Yes. Yes. To eradicate it. Jesus, as the predicted Messiah, fills out infinitely and eternally all human suffering in order to eradicate it. Should write that down. That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. I know we're. It's amazing. It's hard to see faces with the masks, so I think you're not listening maybe as good, but you are. So, Amen. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, first of all, this morning, we want to see this truth. David figuratively felt forsaken by God. Jesus literally was forsaken by God. Jesus figuratively was forsaken by God. Jesus literally was forsaken by God. Now, if you're a theologian here this morning, that statement should give you some consternation. And again, we're, we're witnessing this from uh, the prophetic witness. We're witnessing this from a human perspective. But there's a powerful point to be made here, and we'll see that unfold. We read in verse, in verse number one, those familiar words that we find echoed in the Gospels, the very words of Jesus himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David opens up the psalm with that tremendous lament. Jesus echoes those very words in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, and in other gospel accounts. From David's perspective, his anguish was the result of unanswered prayer. He was arguing, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and you haven't heard me. Does that sound familiar, friend? Dearly beloved, Perhaps those of you who are guests here for the first time, you've tried to pray. It's to no avail for you. It never seems to work. And just so you know, David felt the exact same way, with great, great anguish of heart. But we need to understand that he is speaking of this prophetically. This is his experience, but he's also indicating the very words that Jesus would use. And Jesus knew this not as a mere figure of speech, but he, in fact, knew the reality of it. 
Remember in Matthew chapter 27, in a moment as Jesus hung there in agony on the cross, the land all around grew dark in the middle of the day. So dark, some commentators argue that you couldn't see the hand in front of your face, so much so that the mighty centurions, the great SEAL Team 6 of the ancient Roman army, trembled in fear. And in that moment, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness fell over the whole place. In response to this reality in David's situation, he turns to prayer. We mentioned that already in that second you section. And in that prayer, he confesses God's character. The God of history is holy. And he is a God who, in fact, has a historical record of answering prayer. And it's to this that the psalmist disciplined his mind as he was dealing with his own situation in severe trial. That God answers prayer. Just by simple way of application here to our first point, you know what? Jesus knows how you feel. Going through severe trial, feeling abandoned by God, he knows how you feel because he has suffered in exactly, well, he has suffered in ways, can I say it this way, that you can only speak of figuratively. He's known the real deal. You may feel abandoned by God, but you have never been abandoned by God. Jesus felt abandoned by God because he was. The father turns his back on the son because he can no longer look upon his son who bore all of the sin of all of humanity, past, present, and future. It was obnoxious to the father. His son whom he loved with an everlasting love. That's a long time to love was made obnoxious in his sight because of you and me. And he felt that. Beloved, he's truly been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. David wrestled in prayer to regain assurance. He rehearsed God's holiness. The Lord is not like we are. He's holy, he's separate from sin, and therefore cannot lie. So whatever I'm feeling or thinking in the moment of my desperation, and, and however those feelings stand contrary to the truth, and can I put it this way, of this messianic prophecies, of any messianic prophecies, those feelings must be combated and put off. We must soldier through them clinging to messianic truth. Remember, David's writing about all of this. We, we, we split it between first advent and second advent. David's writing it as a cohesive whole. So he's ministered unto 
by messianic prophecy. And we're going to get to the joy of it at the end of the psalm. That's where the resolution comes. The tension release comes. It comes in prophetic witness. Not in necessarily changed circumstances fundamentally. Although David's circumstances do change. And for that we're thankful. The psalmist witnesses to that. David recounted how God had faithfully answered prayers, witnessed to by the word of God. We remember, he remembered Hannah. What did Hannah pray for? A child. God answered that prayer. He remembered Solomon. Remember? What did Solomon pray for? He prayed for wisdom. God granted it to him. Daniel. Daniel prayed all the time for wisdom, for safety, to be freed from the lion's jaws. His friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed to be delivered from the fiery furnace. He remembered these. Elijah. We add Jesus' high priestly prayer fulfilled in the perseverance of the saints. The disciples at Pentecost praying to receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. That's not to mention Paul's prayers and the prayers of the apostolic band. But we never want to forget that messianic prophecy is the context that believers find direction and clarity. They remember the holiness of God against the backdrop of his ultimate victory. He's not like we are. He has told us how things are going to work out. David knew what he knew, and he brought himself in prayer, confessing these truths. So not only did David feel forsaken, and Jesus, in fact, knew being forsaken by God, but number two, David figuratively felt less than human. Jesus literally was made to look less than human certainly to feel that. We have here Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8. All who see me deride me, David says. They sneer, they shake their heads saying, ha, turn him over to that Lord whom he says he is and whom he says he's from. Turn him over there. Let God the Father save him. He says he's his father. Ha, ha. Let him rescue him, because Jesus claims that he delights in him. Let's stand here and watch this. Ha, ha, ha. That's the idea. And we know in Matthew chapter 27, these were the very words of the crowd that stood around Jesus at the crucifixion. David's faith had caused him to be derided. It was his faith that caused him to feel like he didn't fit. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt less than human because of the faith you hold in Jesus Christ? You feel like you don't fit or you just want to go off into the corner and die? Jesus felt the same way, only infinitely more so. This prophetic psalm tells us out of David's situation. Whereas others do not carry through on their threats, at least here in America for now, they have in the history of the church, have martyred God's saints, but for now, not here, certainly in other areas of the world they are. 
But in Jesus' case, they absolutely carried through on their threats. They physically treated him like a worm and less than human. So much so that he was physically marred beyond recognition, is what Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, reminds us of. Unrecognizable, disemboweled, a crown upon his head, his beard plucked out, the swollen, grotesquely misfigured body of Jesus, treated like a worm. You know, we can figuratively say, oh, they treated me like dirt. But remember, friends, Jesus was, in fact, treated like dirt for you and for me. In response, David rehearses God's sovereign work and salvation. This is instructive for us when we're feeling this way in the context of the prophetic witness. What ultimately pulls us out of these states is the idea that God's going to win. All right? Jesus will come back. This is the prophetic witness. So how do I handle my reality here today? I go to prayer and I confess God's work, his sovereign work in my salvation. You can read that there in the verses uh, uh, 28, 7, 8, 9, 10, the, the second you section there. David recognizes that his level of commitment and faith to God's word did not originate in himself. This is something that God had done to him. You see that in the passage. It was a supernatural one that regardless of how others made him feel, he could not deny. It was, in fact, we would put it this way in modern parlance, it was who he is. He can do nothing else but to reference his faith in Jesus Christ. He can do nothing else. This is who he is. God did this to him. And it's beyond compelling. It's transformational. It's transformational. It was, in fact, who he was. This was Paul and Silas's reasoning as they sang in the jail. It is what Paul reminds us of, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And in those hours, we want to sing about God's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see God's sovereign work in my salvation. Amen. Circumstances may not necessarily get any better, but oh my, the light begins to pierce into your dark, depressed soul. And you're beginning to understand how David wrestled his heart back to truth in a prophetic context. Remembering it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay one day. It was God's supernatural work in his soul that would stand the test of time and eternity. Not his less than human-like feelings. Remember, less than human. This he knew would come to an end. Jesus would come and fix all of that. In fact, in David's life, it came to an end. Some people, it comes to an end. And they enjoy no longer suffering on this earth. But not everybody. And certainly not Jesus. 
And so we who are his followers can't expect anything fundamentally different, can we? If we're really following in his footsteps, if that's our goal. Forsaken, less than feeling human. Number three, David figuratively felt like he was going to die. Tell me about Jesus. He what? He literally died, didn't he? He literally died. Um, Jesus knows what it means to die. All humanity suffers under the weight of dying physically. Some of you, under the sound of my voice, perhaps live stream, maybe even here, We've already prayed for those who have lost loved ones. Death is poignant and it's real. It's fearful. Jesus, know, know this, Jesus the Messiah of God understands in fact what it means and what it's all like. Jesus' death was an agonizing death by crucifixion. A commentator writes here, crucifixion was not practiced in the same, in the time of David or for many long centuries afterwards. So this particular section, this, this particular section, 11 verses through 18, is an account of suffering uh, that David certainly speaks of figuratively. He, 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 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words are being given to him, but he certainly didn't experience this level of suffering. He wasn't even around yet. But prophetically, he speaks... Jesus' body demonstrated the exact conditions at death as predicted of the coming Messiah, didn't he? What were those conditions? Well, we have the first one given to us in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. The first part of that verse, I am poured out like water. In the second part of that verse, all my bones are out of joint. We know he thirsted, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws. We're told here that his hands and feet are pierced. All of these realities find fulfillment in John 19, Matthew 27. John, uh, again, all through John 19, all through the gospel witnesses. I have the verses here. If you want them afterward, I can give them. Or Courtney will report them in her little sermon synopsis if you ever have opportunity to read those on our website. But Jesus experienced this agonizing kind of a death. We're told here that he was poured out like water. We're, uh, doctors have given a, a term to that condition. It's a, it's a, see if I can read it here. It's a, it's a hemothorax. It's, it's what happens upon death when... When, when blood pools in the lungs and the heavier red blood cells sort of creep to the bottom and the lighter, clear liquid plasma is released and it separates the blood. And when Jesus' side was pierced, this is what poured out. Jesus experienced that. John nineteen thirty four. All of his bones were put out of joint. Verse 16 of our psalm, they pierced his hands and his feet. You know, crucifixion was the cruelest form of punishment practiced by the Romans. Roman citizens could not normally undergo it. It was reserved for the worst crimes like treason and evasion of due process. The Roman historian Cicero called it, quote, a cruel and disgusting penalty. Josephus calls it the worst of deaths. 
David felt like he was going to die. Jesus literally died an agonizing death for your sin and for mine. David's response, he continues to plead for timely relief. Character of God, sovereignty and salvation, continued prayer for timely, timely relief. And then fourthly this morning, David was literally delivered just in the nick of time. We had you highlight that verse 21b, I believe, from the very horns of the dilemma he was saved from, the horns of those terrible bulls of Bashan he was delivered from. Jesus was literally delivered, not in the nick of time, but in the fullness of time. He arose again bodily from the dead. David's deliverance was felt in time. David was rescued. Jesus was resurrected. A more powerful and profound deliverance. The kind of deliverance that all of humanity hopes for and longs for. Jesus is the author of that deliverance. On what authority must we view Jesus' death as deliverance? That doesn't sound like deliverance, does it? Dying? Deliverance? The authority of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with a loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was saved from death via bodily resurrection. Amen. Wow, that's wonderful. Powerful. The result of David's deliverance, David called his generation to worship the Lord for his timely deliverance. Verses 23 to 24, you read that there. The result of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is predicted of the Messiah, will one day make all things right. So this is the part that's still prophecy for us. David saw it all in one, one big gulp. We get it in two gulps. What we've read so far has been literally fulfilled. What we're reading now is yet to be fulfilled. How? Literally. It's a cohesive whole. It's here the church perks up. Not that we weren't perked up before. We run to the cross frequently, but it's a familiar sight for us. It's a great joy and comfort. But oh, how sick and tired we are of living under the auspices of sin and death. Here we perk up. Jesus, as predicted of the Messiah, will one day satisfy the afflicted. You can read that there. Jesus, as predicted here in this psalm of the Messiah, will enjoy praise from those who seek him. Number three, Jesus, as predicted here of the Messiah, will one day turn the hearts of every man and woman living on earth to him. All will be saved. Jesus is predicted here in the psalm of the Messiah will one day enjoy the worship of the nations. Jesus is predicted here of the Messiah will one day possess the kingdom on earth and rule over all nations. Jesus is predicted here of the Messiah will give equal access, equal access to his presence. Whether you're prosperous, impoverished, or you're about ready to die, you'll have equal access, according to the psalmist, prophecy of the coming king. Jesus has predicted here of the Messiah will, will know how, will know a long legacy. 
Jesus has predicted here of the Messiah will have his righteousness declared to a people who will be born. We have yet been able to do that as a church. Jesus, as he did in his first advent, embodied by his cry on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Well, as predicted here of the Messiah in his second advent, the words here is he will perform it. Look at it. It's the last verse of the psalm. He will perform it. It will be finished. Nothing left to chance. He's doing all of this himself. No angel, no human. This is what he's doing. No chance of failure. So in conclusion, it is rational to conclude that the historic Jesus of Nazareth is the promised coming Messiah. Can I hear an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. It's rational. It's rational. Um, some may argue it's hard to believe, but it's rational. There's a prophetic witness. There are words on this page that if you read them and believe them, your faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Your faith is set firmly upon the prophetic witness of the scriptures Amen. and on the rock of Jesus himself. Be encouraged, beloved. It's rational that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the coming King. Literal fulfillment of the prophetic word concerning Jesus gives solid ground to the church's living hope. It follows that as consistent as the prophetic witness is in its predictions, it is equally consistent in its fulfillment. It's literal. Literal predictions with literal fulfillment. Jesus came. He was born in Bethlehem. He will rule this world. Amen. Period. Amen. 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 Believers, what confessions fill your lips when you feel forsaken by God? Learn to meditate on Jesus' holy and just character within a prophetic context. Remember the day he saved you? Reflect upon his sovereign choice of you in salvation, the sweetness of forgiven sins. Remain steadfast in your petition for deliverance and remember that God will win. Amen. Set your life firmly in a prophetic context. Always, always. Unbelievers, to address you this morning, Christmas is the season that demonstrates in a very profound way that God's interests are very clear and they're singular. He sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh, to die. God cannot die. God is spirit. Death is the separation of Physical from immaterial. If you're all immaterial, spirit, you can't die. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to have that separation. The only person who could die with the kind of quality of death necessary to appease the wrath of God, who, by the way, is infinite and eternal, and infinitely and eternally offended by your sin and mine, was his own son Jesus, somebody who was like him, was made like us, 
so that he could die as our substitute. This, this is God's interest. He's your substitute, dear friend. He wants to give your soul forgiveness. He wants to give your soul the guiltless peace of mind that follows forgiveness. In his resurrection, he offers you power over sin. He wants to give you the ability not to sin. He wants to give you the ability to enjoy a holy life, or at least aspects and parts of it. That which you'll know in full when you see Jesus. He wants you to know in this life the qualities of eternal life, albeit in part. A life that grows in clarity and confidence. Why? Because it's making the exact same choices that God, the creator of the universe, would make if he was in your shoes. Wow, that's confidence. That's confidence. These choices lead to a plain, predictable path of joy in living. I would implore you today, whether you're listening on live stream, in the audience, or somewhere in the building, I would implore you to reassess this babe in a manger. This is the Messiah of God who has come, died for sin, who will come to rule this world. Miraculously predicted a thousand years before fulfillment. Down to the very words and feelings as reported in the Messianic Psalms. The historic Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled them all, literally. And he will fulfill them all, literally. This babe in a manger. Please turn to him from your sin. Your self-centered philosophy of life. Maybe that's a way to put it. Stop referencing yourself. Turn from that construct and start referencing Jesus and asking him how you ought to live. That's what we call repentance. Receive freely by faith the forgiveness he secures. There's nothing you can do, dear friend. Jesus paid it all. You know, don't, 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 don't mess it up. Jesus was perfect. He did it all perfectly. Don't try to wiggle in there. Just let the Father and the Son do what they do best. Provide redemption for you and for me so that we can glorify him with our lives, okay? Don't, don't go play in that arena. You cannot work your way to heaven, period. Amen. You're just not that holy, and you don't have that level of influence. You're just, you're finite. So this is what God has done in the person of Jesus. May we rejoice together as a church family in this Christmas season as we understand uh, what this babe in a manger truly is. Let us live our life in a prophetic context, just like David did, and answer the, the, the challenges of our life. Whatever feelings may come, learn to answer those within a prophetic context, confessing truth that we do know and have concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for the patience of these dear people. Encourage their hearts. Let us go from this place confident in the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he of whom the angels, hosts of angels sang. <laughs> and all they could find were sleeping shepherds. Lord, that, that's so indicative of what we are. We, we, we're dull. And we confess that. And uh, wake us up as you're able. Help us to progress. And Lord, as we walk through very difficult times in our life and we feel these things, we thank you, Jesus, that you not only have felt them and as we try to express them figuratively, you knew them literally. And uh, we thank you for that. And, and we take comfort there and help us to, to, to walk and to remember all that you are. 
and all that you will do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.